stay hungry, stay foolish. Before we launch into part three of Hidden Truths with David Fubini, I want to thank our sponsor, Zai, boldly transforming the future of financial services with a suite of products and services enabling businesses to move funds with ease and manage multiple payment workflows. Check out Zai at hellozai.com. Let's get into part three of Hidden Truths with David Fubini. It is such a great pleasure to welcome back the author of Hidden Truths, David Fubini. Welcome back. Thrilled to be back and thank you for inviting me back. One of the benefits of us having a little bit of a, a break between parts one and two was I had ordered a pin, you know, this this nerdy thing I do about the pins. I had ordered this pin and I, I'm going to just put it in the camera there. It's a, it's a kid covering their mouth as in don't say, don't speak up. And I thought it was so perfect for Hidden Truths when I first got in touch with you to ask you onto the show. But feedback has been magnificent, David. I'm so grateful. And so many CEOs got in touch and went, that is exactly what I needed to hear. It was a wake-up call. I'm sure you hear that a lot yourself. Apropos your pin, there's a lot of CEOs who don't feel like they can say things. But then when you actually ask them to tell, you know, uh, often retired CEOs, in particular, they're so open and so engaging and they're so wanting to talk about their experiences. And so it's wonderful to sort of have that opportunity to pass that along to your listeners. I really mean the feedback has been so, so good. One of the pieces of feedback I received was, hey, Aiden, love your content. A little bit too long sometimes because you you go deep. So what we're going to do is do two parts, about 30 minutes each or so, and get deep into some concepts. But this part we're going to talk about is the loneliness of being a, a CEO. Once you step into that role, it becomes a lonely place. Then mentorship, which is something that many people miss, they actually don't know what it really means as well. And then maybe in part two, we'll talk about re rebuilding the bridge with the board or building a bridge in the first place, because it's an awful, oftentimes it's a, a broken relationship, as you talk about within the book. So how about we start off with the loneliness of being a CEO? I thought I'd kind of relate it to my own knowledge, my own formative knowledge, which was in sports, because there's an iconic rugby coach over this part of the world. Many people hate him. <laughs> Many people love him. He was the former coach of Australia, Japan, and now he's the English, the UK's rugby team coach, a guy called Eddie Jones. And he said in his in his autobiography something fascinating, David, that I thought would tee you up nicely. He said, I prefer not to talk to anyone on the team bus. It's a lonely job. and I'm used to its solitary nature. When I became Australia's head coach in 2001, Rod McQueen, who was his predecessor, explained the challenges of the job. His final words hit home. You're now the loneliest man in Australia. And I thought about that's exactly what David suggests happens once you take up office as the CEO in a large organization. I think this was one of the more surprising findings I um, I encountered when I went around and talked to CEOs, in particular those who had been retired. And, um, and they said, reflecting back, this was something they had, were ill-prepared for. Um, um, your coach, uh, you know, had a, a former coach along, um, understand it, uh, CEO said, look at, I suddenly realized I have nobody to talk to. 
Um, you know, I really, you know, I, I, it's hard for me. I mean, listen, I have a hundred people I can talk to, but to have a real deep personal conversation where I'm sharing openly and transparently, I really don't have that. Uh, my board conversations are always in, you know, we'll talk about the board always, you know, tainted by the fact that the board is in judgment of me. So it's hard to have an open and candid conversation when at the end of the day, they are judging me. Um, it's really difficult to talk to my, if I was an internal candidate, to talk to the people I used to work with because now I'm their boss, you know, and that's a challenge. Um, if I'm new, uh, because I'm an external um, uh, to the organization, I'm coming in, I don't really have the relationships with those folks. They don't know me. And no matter what, it's going to be a subordinate to CEO relationship. My peers, I, I can talk to, a, you know, at sort of some, you know, uh, events that are held where, you know, we come together. But a lot of that is, you know, uh, talking to other people's facades. You know, I mean, we have to be very careful. We can't let down, you know, and really talk personally to one another in a big setting where we're on a, on a podium together, um, because there's always issues of conflict and and um, and disclosing and and also, you know, really, uh, for the most part, I don't have relationships with those CEOs uh, because they've been my competitors or they're in a different industry. Um, so. It's like, well, where do I go to, to have a conversation? And so this is why it's a real challenge. And it's uh, something that um, obviously consultants like myself, you know, try and fill that void, but we can only do that partially. Um, obviously, somebody's, uh, we all have partners at home that can help, but they don't understand all the details of, the, uh, of what we're experiencing. So it does feel very lonely. It's so important. You mentioned there about the consultancy role, and I do play that role. And, and I just want to make it clear, I'm not touting for business here. Right. <laughs> I'm busy. But I work with a couple of CEOs, and I play that role almost like uh, an agent provocateur. Mm. So to provoke right. thinking, essentially. And it's so important, because I thought about something about, I, I don't know if you ever saw the show, Jim Carrey was the star of this show called The Truman Show. And yes, essentially, it was a, right. a reality show. Right. And they were forming his reality by presenting certain characters, etc. And I thought about how it's exactly the same with CEOs, because so many people are afraid to speak up and hence the pin as well. They're afraid to speak up in case they get tainted in case they fall victim to shooting the messenger effect, right. because it is a dangerous place to be. And it, 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 it is. And um, so it's also why it's funny. Uh, there's a number of uh, former CEOs on the Harvard faculty here, and they, they get reached out to because they've obviously been there, done that job, and they can, and they can obviously uh, provide a consultative uh, support the, of the type even you and I can't do because um uh, I, for one, have never been a CEO, and I make that very clear at the outset of the book. I'm writing more as an observer rather than a participant as, in that role. But this is the, the thing that was most striking was how surprising it was for them, that this was like, oh, my heavens, I suddenly have nobody to talk to when all my career I've had many. And David, any advice for those CEOs? Because we did say the last time, build your network before you get into the office. So you need that. You need to build that capability before you need it. But what can you do when you're in the office and you kind of go, uh-oh, I can't speak to anyone here? Well, the first of all, is it's really helpful. And most, um, most of us have kitchen cabinets that uh, we have developed in, through a network of people uh, as we've gone through our careers. And this is it's really important for a CEO to have some sort of a 
somebody, a group of people that he can uh, or she can be talking to. Uh, it need not be a huge number. We're talking two or three uh, people that are really uh, go-to people for advice and counsel. We'll come and talk about mentorship. These usually are mentors uh, who have stayed with them for a while. And so you want to tap that. Secondly, uh, many CEOs um, have used uh, some on their staff as real um, people that they can confide in. Um, these are usually people who are not destined to be their replacements, but rather you know, uh, clear advisors who have a role that is distinctly different from other operating roles. So like the general counsel often turns out to be somebody or the chief human resource officer you can turn to and, and really have a, a very in-depth relationship with. Um, it's sometimes still fraught with the challenge of, you know, it being, uh, you know, somebody's obvious boss, but, you know, you really can nurture that relationship and, and be open to it. Uh, the third is, uh, you know, you can understand that there's going to be a reluctance to sometimes talk to you and be open and candid. But if you model the behavior of being, you know, uh, receptive to and open to and frankly sharing of and empathetic, you'll get more uh, of a relationship from both your board as well as from peers as well as from subordinates. Now, I'm not suggesting it can always be without um, some uh, level of you know placating and you know you know and telling you what you want to hear, but you might have less of that if you really are yourself open to and candid about getting that feedback and wanting it. And just in the back of your mind, always wondering, well, how much am I hearing this because you think it's what I want to hear? You know, but. Uh, the, those who come in and uh, much as your, your coach analogy and story, you know, and, and really say, I'm going to sit on the bus and not say anything to anybody, well, then you're going to be a very, very lonely person. So I would say that you have to follow the antithesis of that in the corporate setting as opposed to a sporting setting. And as you say, even, even though you might be able to speak to about work to your spouse, many times your spouse, the last thing they want to hear, especially for my wife, for example, minding kids all day, and I come in with my woes from the office, it's like, uh-uh, you take the kids, buddy. <laughs> the CEOs I had the pleasure of working with over my years at McKinsey, there'd always be one or two people that are just, or one or two things, but primarily people that bother them that, you know, in and I'm sure that they go home to their to their to their partners and they say, you know, I cannot believe how you know Sally or Sam is doing. And you know, and I think your partner's are like, would you just deal with them? I mean, good lord, I can't. I'm tired of hearing about Sally and Sam. <laughs> it's and it's great advice. You know, I, I really lean into the whole Carl Jung thing about lean into those people, learn what they're trying to teach you. Always, and you know, we write these whole scenarios about one about relationships and. And we have a certain set of beliefs and there's a voice in your head saying, here's what really is happening. And you really got to challenge that voice in your head. You really have to challenge it because you're probably most often wrong. I did a really interesting thing recently, David. I, I wrote down all the people in my life that I had friction with, uh, that I believed I had friction with, going right back to childhood. And this is going back about two years. And then I reached out to some of them that I could and I met them. Uh, but but what I found was there was patterns in the type of character, and some of them even looked alike. Like so, some people from my childhood kind of reemerged later on, resurfaced later in my life, and I was like, "Wow, that's really interesting." So if you believe in karma and those type of things, I'm kind of going, "Hmm, I wonder what was there." But it was the reason I share it was the value in in letting go of it and not holding on to that and not 
those type of people that you'd see coming down the street and you would cross the road that you don't have to anymore. In a similar vein, um, when I joined the faculty at Harvard, there are some really some really people that are extraordinarily well-known. You know, all your listeners and viewers would know many of them. One of them happens to be a really, really super accomplished uh, woman who's um, just by very presence and uh, physical as well as mental acuity and and, present and role in, in the place, she's just a dominant personality. And you and and I remember saying to some others, very senior practitioners that were teaching, I said, you know, she scares me. And you know, and so I I actually decided to I, I, I um, scheduled time with her and I walked in. And I said, you should know that you're you're a spectacular person, but you really scare the hell out of me. And and I just thought I'd tell you that because I figured if maybe we could sort of get past that. Anyway, this lovely conversation. It turns out she's an absolute marshmallow inside, and you know, and can't be the nicest, most kindest, gentlest person. And I had it all wrong, and now we have this wonderful relationship. But if you can, if you're willing to confront that, it makes a big difference. So, yeah, I don't know if that's apropos of this whole uh, brilliant thing we're talking about, but it is still important. It's gold because I do think dealing with those things. So it's hard enough in the workplace without battling within the workplace, try and battle against the competitor on the outside and the changing markets. But let's move on to mentorship. And I was thinking about there's there's a few different ways to view mentorship. There's you receiving mentorship as the CEO, but there's also you creating a succession plan of mentorship, mentoring maybe a second in command. And I wanted to start with that one. Because again, some personal experience here is I always believed in the whole idea of bringing others along with you. But it can be dangerous, again, because for example, what happened to me was in my role, I mentored somebody and she was brilliant. And she went on to do amazing things. But when I kind of handed over as much as I could what I was thinking and how I did things, I could feel the staring eyes of the CFO kind of going, we won't need Aiden anymore. He's on he's on X amount of money. We could be saving that. And I could I could just see the calculator working in his brain every time. And ultimately it led to kind of friction between us and I left the organization because really I didn't my whole thing was make yourself redundant so you can move upwards and do better things. But ultimately I hit a ceiling. And in the moment I felt awful about it. I was angry about it. I was angry with him etc. He was on my list, for example, <laughs> for a while. But then as always happens in life, you realized, well, I kind of needed that forest fire. And now it's released me to do other things. And it's, it's we're all worked out. But in the moment, it can be difficult. And I totally get it. If you're a CEO, and your identity is wrapped in your position, you feel a little bit of danger about mentoring somebody else who might take your place. Well, first of all, let's uh, let's do a couple of things. Let's just let's describe what mentorship is, so that viewers and listeners understand. There's a difference between being a coach and a mentor. A coach is somebody who comes in and says, "You're at this level of skill. I'd like you to get to this level of skill." There's a certain amount of improvement I'm going to seek to get over. It's a transactional relationship. I do something and I improve you from baseline to, to this level, but then I leave. Um, you know, or you know. Uh, or uh, my role is different. Mentorship is like, no, I am, I am wor I'm worried about your whole being. I, I'm worried about who you are as a person. Um, yes, in relationship to our professional relationship, but also our personal relationship. I care about where you are in the world. And I think our, our, ours is a familiar relationship that will continue beyond the moment that, we're, that we find ourselves in. 
That's what true mentorship means. Now, to your point, Jack Welch of GE fame uh, has a famous YouTube video, which uh, your viewers uh, might want to just get, because he basically says what you just said, which is he thinks mentorship stinks, because he says you get with somebody, then it turns out that they're your mentor, then people dislike that mentor, they fire that person, and then you're you're like the old guy's, you know, um, you know, disciple, and we we're going to fire you too. So he said, don't ever have mentors. Now, I love Jack. I knew him pretty well when he was here in Boston. I totally disagree with that perspective. But I'm just telling you, many could have that. CEOs, you know, uh, can mentor their uh, executives because they really will get so much more out of them if they are feeling as if they're being actually not just coached, but cared for, that there's a real empathy for them and you want them to succeed. Because by the way, CEOs are more successful if their if their BU leaders and their operational pe- people are being better at their jobs and, and more successful. And they will be if they're mentored. Yes, in the back of their heads, I'm sure most CEOs do know that they're actually enabling their replacements to be developed. But you know, I think for the most part, CEOs who who I spoke to basically say, I I know that, and I know I have a certain length of time. But frankly, this way, I at least ensure that my that my team is more solid. I get the beneficiary of that ability. And frankly, I can have a legacy that says I left this to an internal candidate. I didn't have to, we didn't have to go outside to replace me because I didn't do my job, which was to create an internal candidate to replace me. On the other hand, it is difficult to do in, on the day to day because it's like, my God, if I spend more time with Aiden, he's going to, you know, he's really been a rocket ship. And my God, he's going to just blow right past me. That does exist, but you've got to fight that, that natural instinct. I loved your father's quote, cooperate with the inevitable. Right. And you say you'd offer the same advice to CEOs. CEOs have to use the need for successors to their advantage, you say, not see it as a threat to their continuity. I, I love, love what you said there. There's a, another great quote, perhaps you'll expand upon. You said, in a in the command and control past, mentorship was less important because senior execs tended to be directive and senior staff was informed as to what was expected of them. With a bit of coaching and a great deal of performance pressure, employees would respond positively and learning was more experiential. Today, however, the demands of the market and the expectations of employees at all levels require greater development initiative and embrace of learning and a pursuit of personal growth and developmental learning opportunities. Mentors facilitate such activities. Again, love that. It's because, um, you know, and we talk about this earlier in our conversations and in the book, you know, the the huge number of constituents that, that one now has to deal with on any topic is so great, much greater. The communication challenges are so much more deeper and more challenging because now we have social media and traditional media that one has to deal with. There's advocacy groups that you didn't have before. There's activists you didn't have to worry about previously. So all of this is makes this so much more challenging than it used to be in the command and control environment. And that's why, you know, a whole generation of CEOs have come through and and, and tried the command and control and it rarely works. It really only it only really works in deep functional one product type companies um, doesn't work anymore for the reasons you've just are articulating. 
another topic you talk about in your dedicated cha- chapter two is aligned to mentorship and somewhat this is about walking the talk and you say CEOs need to use role modeling as an essential change management asset. I thought you'd bring us through this. You say the hard truth is that CEOs often don't like to do the role modeling that is required to accelerate their change programs. And as a consultant, you were always surprised by the comfort CEOs took in being in their own offices rather than being out there either walking the talk, talking to customers, being in the war room, sometimes they're not even in the war room, working on strategy of their own companies. This is um, one of those things that I observed throughout my time as a consultant. And certainly, um, even now, uh, I observe it uh, when I work with uh, organizations on a variety of manners. There's this sort of comfort in the home status of being in my office. I'm in control. I have my staff around me. I am. I know exactly what's going to happen in almost any meeting. It's sort of you know the 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 power of the known is 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 very seductive, um, and and CEOs will often say, "Look, this is the more efficient use of my time. I can really um, you know see many people this way." What you're talking about is is I have to leave the comfort of this office is what they're really having their heads, but they're saying to you, "I have to go and I have to travel and I." I have to spend time in it very inefficiently. I'm not really, you know, I'm really not basically doing my job in the way I think is best done. You know, who, who cares if I walk through a factory floor, you know, um, who will really ever notice? And, you know, it, just that factory will know. They don't know all the other things. And I keep saying you are so wrong, you know, because one is you're so carefully watched as a, as a leader. People know exactly what you're doing, where you spend your time who you meet with, they know. Uh, if they don't know for certain, they get told and they infer it from where um, uh, what they read about you. So how you visibly spend your time is an incredible signal to your organization. So if you're out visiting a factory, other factories will assure you know it. If you're out meeting with customers, other customers will know it. Um, and then your own people will know it. Your own sales force will say, oh my God, he's visiting that, you know, that incredibly important customer for us. I hope, you know, that means he probably cares about what we're doing. He understands us. That's the power of the role modeling behavior. Um, you know, our, our political leaders know how to do this almost to a fault because they just do stuff for show, the, the usual ribbon cutting stuff. It has to be substantive, too. You just cannot show up for show. You've got to really want to know when you're walking around a factory, you know, stop and ask people, why are you doing things the way you do? How can we do things better, you know? The, the 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 most powerful thing you can always say is how can I help, in you know, in any organization you ever meet. I had one CEO tell me that the thing that he learned most on a tour he did of sales offices and customers was yes it was important to see the customers but he, he was not surprised by what they said to say. What he was surprised about was the salesperson who was driving him around at every different uh, city. He said I learned so much from them because they they told me the truth in a way that I would not have understood otherwise. I saw how they spend their days. That was a great learning lab. That's what role modeling is. And it's so powerful. It's a form of communication that has great power and it's underused. One of the other parts you talk about is, okay, you mentioned about how do you spend your time? You talk, you call this calendar management, but you mentioned again on one of your lunches with Jack Welsh, how 
you asked him, you're like, come on, Jack, really, how long do you spend on, you know, the learning organization? And it revealed the truth behind the, the amount of work that he did do on that. It wasn't all execution. It wasn't all strategy. It was a lot of nurturing. And, you know, and I was shocked when I said, you don't really spend as much time as people say you do on human resource management and training. He said, if anything, it's understated. It's really, you know, now, again, remember, this is a different era, different time. Uh, but still, I think it's valuable, as you point out, that the learning organization, and it gets back to the mentorship point, it takes time and you have to sit with people and you have to understand them and help them. And, you know, this isn't like a, a you know, sitting down and have a cup of coffee for 10 minutes and, you know, checking the box. This is my sitting down and really understanding who these people are, how I could help them and really what motivates them. Um, you know, there's there's a really wonderful story. This is getting back to your sporting analogy. Red Auerbach uh, was uh, was a famous coach of the Celtics, and he won 11 championships, I think, in 12 years with R Bill Russell. And Bill Russell explaining the success that the two of them had was that Red Auerbach had the best ears in the NBA, he said. He would actually listen to every player and know how to motivate and coach that individual player because he listened better than any coach and he tailored his approach and it was why he was so successful. And I always think that's something you should ask yourself is as a CEO or leader, are you the best, do you have the best ears in your organization? Are you listening the best? Because, you know, a lot of leaders think they need to talk Really, what they need to do is listen. And again, it's, as you say, it was a shift. And one of the things that just to highlight on the, the Jack Wells stuff is, that in the time that they were leading in a learning organization, it wasn't a done thing, like, because it's kind of like everybody's at least attempting it now. But back then, that was highly unusual as well. Just to tip the hat to, to Jack, may you rest in peace. Just on role model, let's also remind you ourselves, our, you know, ourselves that Jack has many faults, as many CEOs do, and we all do. But when it came to replace him, he had four internal candidates that uh, now, he, you know, we can all argue whether or not Emma was the right choice. But the point is, is that he had four. He then not only he didn't abandon the others, he got them jobs. I mean, they all got massively important jobs, you know, so that's that's mentorship, right? That's really, really a great example from Jack. Even, as you say, uh, now that he's passed, it's so useful to remember that part of him again, going against the grain, because many people who go for the CEO role often leave the organization because they feel they kind of have to as well, which is just, again, uh, magnificent. But it re reflects also you're saying about where do you spend your time by role modeling as a CEO? In in doing that also by going around the organization, seeing what people are doing on the floor, you're also delivering what I love you call psychic psychic rewards and just to talk about incentives i, I grew up when I, I worked in the pub i was telling you before i got a <laughs> i got a, a an operation a surgery on varicose veins here i couldn't have had a worse upbringing for varicose veins firstly genetics secondly worked in a bar when i was a kid and third had a career playing rugby and stand on my feet for a living today so i'm everything's going against me but Going back to the bar days, so in my teens, David, I worked in a bar, and I used to come in early, like 6 a.m., clean the place, it was four floors, clean it from top to tail, then become a cellar boy, bringing in the kegs of beer, then become a, a cleaner, and then become a barman. And 
I, it used to make me really jealous to see, envious to see the lounge boys and girls getting tips, especially from American tourists, because we don't really tip very well over here in Ireland, <laughs> this part of the world. But then you saw changes in behaviors, because when the lounge boys or girls saw that it was an American tourist, they knew they were good tippers, they all flocked and they all kind of like, you know, vultures around the carcass <laughs> looking for the tips. And I say that to say how incentives really, really tilt behavior in certain ways. And sometimes it's good, sometimes it's not so good, which is why you talk about the power of psychic rewards. We all need a certain minimum level of compensation above that. So before you get to that level, whatever that is for all of you individually, yes, monetary always trumps psychic. But at some point over that, that minimum threshold, over time, the value of the cash awards you get does, you know, plateau. It just does. For the amount, you know, not enough more money that you throw at somebody is going to really change their behavior. The exceptions probably are sports stars and Hollywood stars. Other than that, for the most part, people, you know, uh, because they measure their worth on the basis of what they got paid for the last film. CEOs and other executives don't. So, so the psychic reward does have an asymptotic relationship. It just but psychic, uh, sorry, compensation rewards. Of, but psychic rewards are always incredibly powerful. And the, and the more you use, the better they are to motivate people. Um, what are psychic rewards? They are, hey, you did a, you did a fabulous job. Thank you. Um, that's a psychic reward right there. Um, you know, I want to uh, give you a committee assignment if you're in a professional service firm to help us guide the strategy of the organization. Um, I, you know, could you leave recruiting because you're such a powerful force? You know, in, in the firm, you I'd like you to take that out and get others like you. Psychic reward. Um, you know, we're having a training program for high-profile people. I want you to go on it. Psychic reward. These are the things that people, you know, really value. It's amazing. Um, and, you know, there, there's so many examples I can give you. Uh, so those are things that are, you know, to individuals. You know, I have CEOs who once uh, led a major cost reduction activity in and um, and so they he took a, a, a one year savings uh, of, uh, from a particular unit. I can't remember exactly how he determined this, but yeah, he ended up sending checks to all the participants and said, "Look at here's the ten percent of the savings you achieved, and I'm giving this back to you as a psychic reward." And he said to me, "David, it was amazing." I, I went back and I said, "Why why didn't anybody cash the checks?" And he said, "Because you know what." They all frame them and put them up on their in their offices because they're so proud to have been recognized for their work. And so even to that extent, they're actually foregoing the financial just to get the psychic return. So the power here is really important of and it is so easily done. And it's and it just is what people long for. And so feed them that, and you'll be the great beneficiary of it. And David, let's talk about the flip side. One of the amazing things I heard during the pandemic was so Ireland has many tech giants based here. So many of the companies are based here. And one of them, maybe all of them, I'm not sure. But I heard this story about one of them in particular had said to its employees, Okay, we know we used to give you breakfast on campus, we used to feed you on campus. We can't do that during COVID. So what we're going to do is you get yourself an Uber Eats, you get yourself Deliveroo, whatever it is, 
and we'll pay for it just keep your receipts so people started to do that then when things started to defrost after the pandemic things started to open up again it was like no we need you back in the office some people are like kind of going eh, don't really want to do that and they're like okay well we're not paying for your your deliveries anymore right and then i'm just talking about how behavior is shaped here people would come in have one meeting in the morning and have their breakfast and go home and work from home again and it just shows you how they can backfire as much as they can help. Maybe you have some thoughts on that. In some respects, this is sort of a monetary uh, incentive and, and, and as opposed to a psychic because it really is, uh, you know, if I'm using your, uh, your breakfast facilities, then I'm not paying for it. So it's a, it's a transference of money. Um, you know, it would be more powerful if, if you were to call up somebody in that context and say, look at we need you here in the office because without your presence, others won't come. Now, I've done I've done nothing to actually reward you other than to say, and by the way, I'm encouraging you to come back to the office, which is something you may want to do. But now I'm telling you, you have to come because if you come, others follow. Oh my God. I'm like, man, of course I'll come. You know, now that's how that you can do a psychic uh, reward to achieve the same thing you're trying to do with regard to a, a monetary award, you know? And there, there's a famous, uh, and that's a famous, but one, a favorite example, which I'm not gonna take the time to go through here, but in the book uh, where UPS drivers, you know, would would um, would, would uh, unfortunately hit things uh, when they're driving. These trucks are very expensive and very big and they cost money to repair. And they tried to pay for better performance and it didn't work. Um, it just it, it modified, but not, in a meaningful way. So what they said to the drivers is, look, if you drive successfully in the US at least, um, over a certain length of time, you get to wear a bomber jacket. We'll give you a bomber jacket as a reward and you get to be in the driver hall of fame. And when I'm teaching this, I always ask people, well, how long do you think they had to drive safely before they earned this award? And many people think, oh, a year, maybe two. And it turns out it's 25 years. They have to drive safely 25 years. And so, People are like shocked by this. And what's even more shocking is that 1,200 drivers have achieved this objective. And most importantly, they drive safer. And you're giving out a bomber jacket. So that's the power of psychic returns. Beautiful example to end this episode on. Let's wrap this one up and then we'll come back because I mentioned breakfast there. It's early morning for David over in the US, so he probably needs some sustenance. We'll take a quick break and we'll record part two. We'll be back with diversity and inclusion. We'll be back with getting on board with your board as well. Extremely important. Two topics that are so important and often overlooked. David, for now, I just want to remind our audience, I have given away two copies of your brilliant book already. I have one left up for grabs, copy of Hidden Truths, What Leaders Need to Hear But Are Rarely Told by David Fubini. David, before we finish, where can people find you for those who don't join us for the final episode? Well, you can always find me on the Harvard website. Um, you just uh, look up Harvard Business School. If you put in um, McKinsey or Fubini, I'll pop up. You can send me an email. I'm available on LinkedIn as well. So those are the easiest ways to find me. David, thanks so much. We'll see you soon. Thank you. As always, I want to thank our sponsor, Zai, boldly transforming the future of financial services with a suite of embedded products and services, enabling businesses to manage multiple payment workflows and move funds with ease. Check out Zai at hellozai.com and we'll see you very soon.